would like to continue a thought that we've had over the last several weeks. The theme of the, the series we've been doing is from dirty to destiny. In other words, just talking about how God took people that were imperfect and in a moment of a spiritual encounter transformed them to give us the knowledge that our past does not determine our future. That God can do anything with us if we will just yield our life to Him. And today I'm reading out of Genesis chapter 27. And I'm going to begin with verse 21. And I want to read you an account. Today we're talking about Jacob who was a liar. Genesis chapter 27 if you want to turn there. And again, I'm beginning with verse 21. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. And Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he blessed him. Are you really my son Esau, he said. I am, the scripture says he replied, but you could say he lied. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. And Jacob brought to him and he ate and he brought some wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and he kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the the smell of my son is like the smell of the field and the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and of the earth's riches and the abundance of grain and new wine may... May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you and be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. And after Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, my father, sit and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. And Isaac trembled violently and said, Who is it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him and indeed he is blessed. And when Esau heard his father's words, he burst out in a loud and bitter cry. And he said to his father, bless me too, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Father, I pray that you would lead us in your word this morning. And that you would help us to understand that regardless of what our background may be or the kind of people that we are, an encounter with you changes everything. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jacob was a liar. We've talked about Moses, a murderer, and Rahab, a prostitute. And today I want to talk to you about a liar. Jacob enters the Old Testament in the 25th chapter of Genesis as we begin to look to God's Word and the story. He was the younger twin of Esau. Esau was born just ahead of Jacob, who the Scripture says grabbed his heel on the way out of the birth canal. It's so close they were in birth. While Esau wandered off to hunt and became a man of the field, Jacob stayed put and seemed to be one that was more content hanging around his parents and hanging around the, 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 uh, the tents and the sheep. Jacob was a liar. Jacob was a cheater. He conned his brother out of his birthright when his brother was hungry one time and he came in 
starving to death. Jacob says, well, I'll tell you what, let's switch orders in the fact that I will become the one who will inherit more and I'll give you something to eat. His brother said, okay, let's do it. And so he conned him out of that. The deception made Jacob fear that God uh, may not always be pleased with him. This continued in his behavior as he got his father's blessing as we just read by pretending to be his brother. His whole life was built on deceitfulness and lying to people and trying to accumulate things that would not normally have belonged from him. And after the passage that we just read, he feared for his life because his brother said, as soon as our father dies, I'm going to kill you. And so Jacob flees under the guise of going to look for a wife among another people. And while he's there, he meets Laban and his daughters. And one of his daughters, his name is Rachel, whom he instantly falls in love with at first sight and wants to marry her. But the father said it's going to cost you something. And so he had to work for seven years in order to gain the hand of Rachel. We know that those of you who have read your Bible know that at the wedding day, I don't know what all took place or how thick those veils were, but obviously something took place because after waking up after his first honeymoon night, he discovered he had been married to the wrong woman. He got the other sister, the older sister, who the Scripture describes to us as being the less attractive sister. He went to his father-in-law, wonderful man in his own right, said, what have you done to me? His father said, well, don't you know the customs is that the younger girl can't get married till the older sister is married. And so if you want to marry Rachel, it's going to cost you another seven years of work. And so he agrees with that with the understanding that he doesn't have to wait those seven years before he marries her, but would put in what is, quote, the celebration time or about a week of being married to Leah before he had another wedding. And he married Rachel, the girl that he loved. Years passed, and during this time he took care of his father-in-law's flocks, and God blessed and prospered everything that was under his care. And after years of being there, he felt he needed to go back to the land that he came from, his homeland. But he was worried that his brother was still wanting to kill him. And so, being Jacob, the deceitful guy that he was, he snuck away when Laban wasn't looking and took his daughters and the children with him and a lot of the flocks. On this journey back home, before he got to the land where he had come from, one night he thought... I need to have a plan in the case that Esau really wants to kill me. So he divided up his family. He divided up his property. He divided up his flocks into two different groups so that in the event that Esau and his men came to kill him, at least it wouldn't wipe him out. He would still have 50% of his assets somewhere. So he began to scheme with all of these things in his mind. And the night before going to meet Esau... While he is sleeping by himself, he has a divine encounter that is described to us in the Word as a wrestling match with God, even though God was in the form of a man in this particular instance. And he wrestled all night. And Jacob would not let him go. And in the end, he asked that he would bless bless me. And after wrestling all night during this divine encounter, something took place as this God-man that he's wrestling, which touches his hip and dislocates it. And he recognized during that time that he had been wrestling with God. And God asked him a question and said, Who are you? And Jacob, for the first time in his life, by describing his name, said, I am a cheater. I'm a liar. I'm a con man. I'm one who can't be trusted. And in that moment of confession during this divine encounter, God transforms Jacob's life and changes his name. Jacob, in that moment, admitted to being a scoundrel. 
And he repented. And in that encounter, God changed everything. As we begin to look deeper into the situation of the like of Jacob and some of the things that took place, let me tell you a little bit about the deceptions that Jacob had had while he was growing up. Number one, we know that he manipulated Esau out of his birthright. And as an aside to that, let me tell you this. We often look at this and say, Jacob was a scoundrel, which he was. But I want you to understand that Esau also put himself into a position where those things which should be very important to him, he sold very cheaply. And we live in a day and age where people are still doing those things today, things that should be very important and things that should be valuable to us. We sell off very quickly in moments of great need. And carelessly and with the cravings of life, he gave up something very valuable. And today we have a warning from God that we are to hang on to those things which are valuable that the Lord places in our lives. And as we look at the life of Jacob, one of the things that made this so interesting is that he was the favorite son of his mother. And so his mother was an enabler to much of what took place within his life. Now, I know those of us who are parents, we would never, ever, ever say that any of our children are more important to us than the other. We have no favorites. This very clearly did not take place within this particular family. In fact, his mother was rather interesting in her own right in the way that she helped Jacob do some of the things that he did and never corrected him when he was a young child. And so he grew up thinking that this way of life was going to be okay to live. And so with the prompting of his mother, she helped him devise this scheme by which he would put wool over his hands and wear the clothes of Esau so that when his father, who was about blind, began to sniff him, he would smell like his brother. How many of you know we each have our own aroma? Some of you are more aromatic than others. And so Esau, since, or, or since uh, uh, his eyesight was going bad, he was smelling to see who is this I'm speaking to, whether it's Esau or Jacob. And as we read in the Scripture, Jacob intentionally and with great forethought and planning deceived his father into receiving a blessing that was not supposed to be his. But once the blessing was given, God honored it. Now, I would look at that and say, why didn't he just say, oh, do over, wrong person. I remove it from you, place it on Esau. But that's not the way it went. When Father blessed, it was blessed. And it was irrevocable. Another thing about Jacob, not only was he deceptive, but he was one of those guys that never thought the rules applied to him. Jacob was not a fan of following rules and regulations and cultural traditions or honoring the way that things were supposed to be. And if you read this, and you can start at Genesis chapter 25 and kind of move through the chapters, and you can begin to read about his life, you'll discover some things. Number one, when he first met Rachel at the well while he was traveling a long distance, he chose to disregard the rules of the well that had a rock rolled over it, and there were only certain times of the day that the flocks were to be watered. He disregarded those, rolled it away, went ahead and, and uh, watered Rachel's sheep before the normal time because rules didn't matter to him. In fact, the greeting that he gave Rachel in the Scripture was different than the way local people normally did things. The Scripture says that when he saw her, he kissed her and he began to cry. That was outside the social norm for the way that you would normally greet somebody. But again, Jacob never saw rules as applying to him. 
He saw himself in, as a person who didn't have to operate according to the rules of culture. We see this again when he wanted to marry the younger sister, ignoring the fact that in this culture the older sister married first. He saw Rachel. I wanted her. I don't care what the rules are. Because I've never had to live according to the rules. I've always got my own way deceptively. And I'm willing to do that again now. And even though Jacob was inheriting the full blessing of God at the laying on of hands, that blessing of God did not come with him at this stage of life. And so he stood before Laban with no price to pay for the bride that he really wanted. And so Laban said, you're going to have to work for her. And again, operating in such a way, he thought that I can get outside the rules, won't have to worry about Leah. I've worked for seven years. This is what I deserve. And he had received what he wanted so many times working outside the rules that he thought this would be the same again. But how many of you know when a deceiver gets deceived, it ticks them off? He goes to his father, how could you do such a thing to me? Those are some of the most ironic words written in the whole scripture. That the deceiver was deceived. And he was mad about it. You see, the problem with Jacob was that he'd received a blessing that his character was not ready to receive. He wanted the good things, but he wasn't the type of person who could handle the good things the right way. And the result of this lifestyle that he had led up to this point brought him to a place where he had had a lot of good things, but he lived in fear. There was no peace within his life. And if you are here this morning and you're living with the blessings of being an American as we have celebrated this week and the blessings of provision, but there's not a peace in your heart, that means you're missing something that God wants to bring into your life. Because God says where I am is peace. So the result of his lifestyle is he had no peace. He had one wife who felt very unloved and unappreciated. He had another wife whom he really loved that was very jealous because the older sister was the one that was giving him children. And although he was living in God's blessing, he had no peace and he was always looking over his shoulder until the night that he wrestled with God. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 32, verses 22 through 30, as we begin to look a little bit at what this encounter looked like. The Scripture says, That night Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two maidservants, his eleven sons, and he crossed the ford at Jabbok. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, What is your name? And Jacob Jacob, he answered. And then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Within that last verse, I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared, comes the cry of a man who finally realized I can't do this on my own and I'm tired of doing things my own way. 
There is within every one of us a fear of mankind of what it will be like for us to have to stand in the presence of God, seeing Him face to face, knowing that God knows everything that we have ever said and everything that we have ever done. He's made a list of all of these things that's written down. We will be rewarded for those good things and we can be easily punished for the things that we have done. Knowing that God sees it all, what will it be like when we stand face to face with God? The joy for us who know Him in relationship, is the fact that He said, I have come to give you life and more abundantly, and as a result of relationship with Him, the sacrifice that He made on the cross, the blood that He shed, washes away the sinfulness so that we can stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But in this relationship, in this encounter with God, Jacob, when he told his name, finally had to stand before God and admit, I'm a loser. I'm a liar. I'm a con man. I'm not who you think I am. Or maybe I'm exactly who you think I am. But my character and my reputation don't match up. I'm in need. I'm alone. And in that encounter with God, He recognized this is my only chance and I am not letting go until I've been made right. And God changed His name and the country and the people of Israel today bear the name of the man formerly known as Jacob, the deceiver. You see, he recognized that the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And as we take this story today and we begin to look reflectively at it and begin to see ways that we can apply it today, I want you to understand, first of all, your way doesn't work, so admit it. Your way doesn't work. If there is any of you that have tried to get to God on your own strength, you have tried to manipulate things so that you get what you want, and perhaps you've been trying to build a bridge in order to get to God, or maybe you've been trying to to manufacture a holy life that's seen on the outside, but you know on the inside it's different. Or maybe you're trying to give up a bad habit by sheer, sheer willpower. Whatever it is, it's time for you to admit that you can't do this on your own. You need an encounter with God. It's time for you to stop trying to do things and start trying to seek God to do things the way that He wants them done. Because the sooner you admit it, the sooner you can walk into a life that is blessed of the Lord. It's only by God's grace that you were enabled to establish a relationship in the first place. And if Jacob Jacob can go from being a deceiver to one whose name is Israel, God can do anything in your life. Don't let your past determine your future. Time for you to admit, I need God. So your way doesn't work. So admit it. Secondly, God is sufficient. Believe it. God proved to Jacob that his way wasn't going to work. When he disabled Jacob with a single touch that dislocated his hip. When Jacob's hip was dislocated, he realized in that moment that the one whom he had been wrestling with had far more power than he was able to muster up on his own strength. And he says, I saw God face to face. He recognized that the greater gave him the blessing and he recognized that he was the lesser in that moment of time. And by seeking God's blessing, he was humbling himself and he was exalting God and he realized that only God could provide a blessing that he so desperately needed. And he believed that God was sufficient. 
And in 2 Corinthians chapter, 9, chapter 12, verse 9, it says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And if you're here this morning and say, I don't have what it takes, my strength isn't sufficient, I want you to know that an encounter with God can give you everything that you need. His grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. I read a story of a college student who was asked to prepare a lesson to teach a speech class. He was told that he would be graded on the creativity and the ability to drive home a point in a memorable way. The title of his talk was The Law of the Pendulum. And he spent 20 minutes in that class carefully at the, at the chalkboard trying to describe the pendulum and the way that it worked. And he put a thumbtack into a string and a little weight on the bottom of that. And he held it at one point and he let it go. And every time it returned, he put a little chalk mark until the point where it came where it wasn't uh, moving at all anymore. And all of the forces of the pendulum were equal. And it was at a state of equilibrium. At the end of that talk, the teacher got up as if uh, he was done with his lesson and he told the teacher oh excuse me he says I'm not done he says I've got a I've got an illustration of this set up in the gym if you'd please come with me and they went into the gymnasium and the young man had taken four cords from a parachute and tied them together and taken weights from the high school or, or the weight room of the school and and hung 250 pounds on the bottom of that and he had a desk sitting near the cement wall with a chair on it, and he asked his teacher to please sit in the chair the young man took that 250 pounds of weight and he walked over and he held it right under the teacher's nose. And he said, looked out to the class, he said, how many of you believe the law of the pendulum? And everybody raised their hand. He looked at his teacher and he said, do you believe the law of the pendulum? And the teacher began to have sweat drops appearing on his forehead and above his lip. And with a crackling voice, he said, Yes. And with that, the young man let the weight go. It began to swish across the room. And it came to a point where the weights seemed to suspend in midair and it started back across the room. The students that were in that class explained they had never seen their teacher move so quickly. He literally dove out of the chair, hit the floor, turned to run. And the students said, you see... We all believe things theoretically, but when our life is on the line, the way we behave really shows what we believe. It's easy for us to believe God's sufficiency when we're in church on Sunday morning. It's easy for us to believe in God's sufficiency when we're in our Bible study times or gathered together with our church friends. But in the real world, where our lives are on the line, too many times we demonstrate that our belief is only theoretical. And the Lord desires us to come to a place where we would recognize that His sufficiency isn't theoretical. It's a reality. He's sufficient. Believe it. Thirdly, you're a sinner. Confess it. I know that we're living in a day and age where the term sinner is one that offends people. I have a suspicion that there's a lot of church words that we use that are going to offend people more and more as we go forward. There have been things take place within our own country as I've had to try to begin to think, how are we going to present God's truth in ways? Because I'm convinced that there's going to come a time that God's word is going to be against the law in some things. It certainly is against people's idea of what should be a approved 
But Jacob had a moment of time where in wrestling with God, he recognized that God was his sufficiency, but he had to come to a point where he confessed who he was. And I, I've recognized even in the church world that we make it so easy for people to say the prayer. Even in our own church, I do this on a regular basis because I don't want to offend people. I don't want to point them out. But there comes a point in time where in the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, we also have to confess who we are. And Lord, I'm coming before you and you already know me in the depths of my sinfulness and the depths of my wickedness. And so, Lord, I am coming to you and I do not deserve your attention. I do not deserve your grace, but I simply have to confess to you who I am so that you can make me into a brand new creature. And everyone who stands before God and has their name written in the Lamb's book of life will be there because they recognize they had to confess their sin before God in order to be changed. And so today, I am not ashamed to say, if you are without relationship with Christ, it's because you are living in sin and there comes this moment of time when in your encounter with God, you're going to have to confess who you are so that God can say, yes, I know, and can change you into who He wants you to be. You see, in 1 John 1, 9, the Scripture says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But if you'll notice the first part of that, it says, if we confess. It starts with us that opens the door of forgiveness to come our way. There was an interesting story that had been written in history about the Prussian king, Frederick the Great, who was once touring a prison in Berlin. And as he walked in, the prisoners fell on their knees before him. And and as they're falling on their knees, they're all crying out, Oh, King, oh, King, I'm innocent. I'm here. I didn't do it. I'm innocent. Please release me. Please release me. And as he's walking through the prison, there's only one person that's standing. Everybody else is groveling. And he looked at the one who was standing there and he says, Why are you here? The man says, Robbery. And the king said, Did you do it? He goes, Yep. And I deserve my punishment. And Frederick summoned the jailer and he said to the jailer, Release this guilty wretch at once. I will not have him kept in this prison and corrupt all these fine, innocent people that are laying at my feet. There's something about confessing who we are and confessing what we've done. That in that confession of admitting who we are, my name is Jacob, I'm a deceiver. God says, now I can do something with you. It can change you. And lastly, you need a change of heart. So desire it. As soon as Jacob spoke his name and thereby confessed his sin and his nature of who he was, God changed his name. And for the Hebrews, this was very important because names meant something. And so the character of an individual was determined by their name and it reflected his nature and it reflected his state of heart. And by changing Jacob's name, God was showing that he had changed Jacob's heart. And and we read that the name was changed to Israel because he had struggled with, with God and with men and had overcome. And the overcoming was not that he won the wrestling match. The overcoming was that he had finally allowed himself to admit who he was so that God could do something in him. Some of you need to realize that you're your own worst enemy. That what is keeping you from the blessing of God is your ability to admit to God who you really are so that He can change you. 
Because you're worried if I do that, then other people are going to see and they're going to think differently of me. There's going to come a moment in time when whatever the people think is not going to matter. But what God thinks is what's going to matter. And so we have to go beyond merely confessing our sinful heart and desire a changed heart, a holy heart, a heart that pursues God. In Psalm 51.10, David prayed, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And like Jacob, we must come before God with a desire to be transformed. There's a southern comedian named Jerry Clower. Some of you may know the name. He was talking at one time about some individuals that had come from way back in the swamp area and were in a hotel for the very first time. And the man and his wife and his son were there. And as they walked into a lobby at the nicest building they'd ever been to in their whole life, and they're staring at this machine that the doors open and people get on it and the doors close, and it changes them. The man was saying, I saw three men in suits and suitcases. They... They walked into that machine and the doors closed. And when it opened a minute later, it was two men came out in swimsuits. That I watched as, as these ladies walked into it carrying a bunch of suitcases. And when the door opened, they came out ready to go shopping. He says to me, and then what really set him off was when there was this old lady who could barely walk and she was all wrinkled and she gets in there and the doors closed. And a minute later, the doors open and this beautiful woman comes walking out and he goes, son, 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 go get your mother. It's always to see the transformation that needs to take place in the lives of others. But God wants to change us. Karen, if you'd please come to the piano. I conclude with this. There was a man that was working in South America on a business trip, and he began to recognize that there was a population of children that literally lived in the sewers. And he made it his life's work to find a place for those children. And the man went back and he began to go to those children living in the sewers. And it required lights to get in there because there was no light under there. They literally lived in the waste of hundreds of households. And he would come to these kids and he would ask them, Do you want to get out of here? Will you let me help you? And just about every child he ever met that he was meeting in these sewers, said yes, they wanted help, and they would begin to come with him. And as they got to places where they could begin to climb the ladder to the sunshine, he said their reaction was different from each one of them. He said some of them, as they're climbing that ladder, and they begin begin to look at themselves. And they see that their clothes, what clothes they had, were just covered in the filth of the sewer. The sun was so bright, they're squinting their eyes, and didn't know what was going to wait for them on the outside. They had been in darkness for so long. Some of them hesitated on the ladder thinking, I look so bad and I smell so bad, I don't want anybody to see me this way. And he said there were some that turned around and would not come out because of the way they looked. And he said there were others that their desire to be set free so overcame their fear that they got out with him. And he says, as I look back on those experiences, he says, I begin to see it's the same thing with us. In the spotlight of the Spirit of the Lord, we see ourselves as we really are, filthy, in need. 
people that need to be cleansed. And in the spotlight of the presence of the Lord, you'll make one of two decisions. Your desire to be transformed will be so great that you were willing to stand before God, admitting who you are and letting Him cleanse you and transform you and give you a new name. Or your fear of being exposed will be so great that you'll climb back down the ladder and say, I prefer to live in the dark so that nobody sees how bad I really am. And forfeit the opportunity at a transformed life. The series that we've been doing, From Dirty to Destiny, brings us to a point where the only thing that matters is what do you do in that encounter with God? As I look around this morning, I know most of you, but there are some new faces. Maybe you didn't know what your day was going to hold when you came here. Maybe you felt directed to the Lord. You just needed to be here. But I want you to know that in just a moment, you're going to make an eternal decision that will transform you. Or you can turn around and climb back down the ladder and go back down into the filth that you live in and forfeit the transforming blessing of God. But the decision is yours alone. Nobody can make it for you. You are not a Christian because when you were a child, your mom and dad had you baptized. You are not a Christian because you live in a Christian household. You are not a child of God because you come to church occasionally or on Sunday, or you may come to all the time. That does not make you a Christian. The Bible says that you are a Christian by confessing with your own lips that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you believe He died for you and that you confess who you are to Him so that He can give you His righteousness and take away your evil heart. It's the greatest decision you'll ever make. Every one of us that are here that know Jesus came the same way. And so stand with me, please, if you would. I'm going to ask that you would just close your eyes for a moment and bow your head. I don't want anybody looking around. But Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you would begin to help each individual examine their life. Some of them, Lord, have lives that are like Jacob, that on the outside it looks blessed. There's plenty of stuff. They've got everything they need, but what they're lacking on the inside that nobody can see is they have no peace. There's anxiety. There's fear. They know that there's something internally wrong that only an encounter with God can change. There's others, Lord, who may have fallen into the idea that as long as they come to church every now and then, as long as they hang around with people that have relationship, that they're going to be okay. But today, through your Holy Spirit, you're beginning to grip them and say, no, I need to know you. I need you to tell me your name and tell me who you are and confess to me so that I can change you. Lord, I pray right now that people that are standing here would come to a recognition that their past, regardless of how deceitful and evil and sinful it may be, does not have to determine their future. But that an encounter with God can transform them. And I ask for your help in this, Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning and you recognize that God is dealing with me and I've, I've got this pounding in my heart, it's called the, con- the convicting power of the Holy Spirit who's saying, this is your moment and this is your time. I'm drawing you to myself. I just need you to say with me, yes, I need you, Jesus.